We are in Romans chapter 11. Yes, all right. Are you excited? (laughs) Romans 11, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24. That's page 947 in those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you in case you're using one of those. All right, before I get uh, to our sermon, I just need to settle something. And if you're not aware of what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Uh, White and gold? White and gold? All right. uh, Blue and black? Okay. See, now, you see I just lost control, right? I just lost... All I said was white and gold, blue and black, and immediately there's like back and forth, you know? What are you talking about is white and gold? It's blue and black, moron. I mean, I don't think anybody said that, but listen, I just brought that up. They may have thought it. I just brought it up because, I don't know if you know about that, you know, controversy. Oh, you don't, you don't know anything about it? Just Google it, white and gold. It's a dress. It's a dress that was posted on the internet and and people see it differently. Supposedly the dress is uh, blue and black, but people see it differently. There's some science behind it. I, listen, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even care. I don't. I don't care. And what I want to say is that what shocked me was, A, two things. One, how fast it spread. It went viral, I mean, just overnight. Everyone, well, almost everyone was talking about it. Uh, but the other thing that was unfortunate is that people started attacking one another. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, verbally. Verbally attacking one another on the internet and on television. Joining two camps, the white and gold camp and the blue and black camp. And if you're not in our camp, then there's something wrong with you. Seriously. Pride. It's pride, beloved. It's one thing to say, listen... You know, to have a conversation about what it is. But it's a whole other thing about the attitude in which that conversation is approached. Right? Jordan was bothered for a second there. He's like, what are you saying? Are you saying I'm proud? Huh? No. It's because Jordan's a blue and black guy. Okay? And he immediately told me, you're wrong. It's blue and black, man. I don't know what to tell you. That's the color of the dress. It's the attitude in which it's approached. I'm not saying he was proud about it. I'm just saying, it's that, do you know what I'm saying? Hey, I'm right. Don't you dare tell me I'm wrong. Listen, I don't care if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It's okay. It's a dumb dress. You know what's more important, beloved? There are so many things in the world that try to divide us or can divide us, right? Or send us against one another, attacking one another. Here's a more important question. How do you see Jesus Christ? That's what we unite around here. See, we have the same thinking concerning Jesus Christ, right? That's the more important issue, not what color the dumb dress is. This is part two. Last time we only looked at verses 16 through 18. And I want to give you a few things, and we'll lead up into the the section here. So bear with me. Referring to the historical context, it's important to understand what was going on in history at the time that this letter was written. Always important to know that when you're looking at a passage of Scripture. Find that out. It has an impact on the text. It will have an impact on your understanding of the text, okay? So here's a comment from a biblical writer concerning what the historical context was when Paul wrote Romans. He said this, 
Although the Jews were tolerated and protected by law from Gentile abuse, they suffered a great deal of popular Gentile ill will and sometimes from outbreaks of violence, violence against them. Resisting assimilation to Gentile culture and refusing to abandon or modify their own practices, and then he quotes another writer, historian, their exclusiveness bred the unpopularity out of which anti-Semitism was born. The Jew was a figure of amusement, something to make fun of, contempt or hatred to the Gentiles among whom he lived. End quote. Paul was determined that Gentile believers in Rome would have no share in such anti-Semitic prejudice. Prejudice. I'm going to read another quote here in a second, but just, you know, just thinking about what they said. They resisted assimilation to Gentile culture. So, of course, in other words, they didn't adopt all of the Gentile ways. And because of that, the Gentiles, what's your problem? You guys got a problem. Because, you know, we're right. We do everything right. There's obviously something wrong with you. Another quote concerning the situation. It is tragic. Now, this moves forward out of that first century. It is tragic and lamentable that throughout much of church history, and this is true, beloved, Jewish converts to Christ, in other words, Jews who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior, have often been subjected to attitudes of Gentile superiority and been shunned or reluctantly accepted into Christian fellowship. That's true, beloved. That's true. Sadly. Pride. Before we read our passage and pick up where we left off, I need to do a little more review with you, okay? In our text, the issue Paul takes up and confronts is basically, I've already told you this, spiritual or religious pride. Spiritual or religious pride. Or the erroneous idea that someone deserves a place in the people of God more than someone else does. More specifically, Paul is speaking directly to the Gentiles in the church in Rome about spiritual pride and warning them, warning them not to be arrogant or embrace any feeling of superiority toward unbelieving or believing Jewish people. Or to say it another way, to those outside of the church, Jews, or inside of the church. But why? And I asked this question last time. Why would Gentiles be tempted to feel or act that way or manifest this type of sin? Why? Well, as I have already pointed out, the first century Gentiles grew up in a culture, in a culture of anti-Semitism. Hatred or prejudice against Jewish people. But in addition to that, with the exception of a believing remnant, Israel, or the Jewish nation, had stubbornly rejected and crucified their Messiah. Okay? And when given a chance to repent of that heinous sin, she not only refused, but became hardened and violent in her unbelief and went on to harass and persecute Christians. Additionally, additionally, when the gospel message went out to the Gentiles, unlike the nation of Israel, the Gentiles embraced 
the person and saving work of Jesus Christ and flood it into the church. Consequently, a substantial shift had occurred in history in the fact that the ethnic makeup of the people of God had changed radically from a Jewish majority to a Gentile majority. And, influenced by sinful pride, the Gentiles apparently drew incorrect conclusions about that radical shift. One writer says this, The temptation to boast among the Gentiles must have been considerable, a kind of anti-Semitism that magnified the sin of the nation Israel in rejecting the Lord Jesus and saw in Jewish persecution of the church a sure token of an irreparable rift or split between the nation and her God. Look at those people. Look at them. We knew they were bad. They're so bad they killed their own Messiah. And look at them persecuting the church of God. Oh, God is through with them. We have certainly taken their place. You see? But that is not the case at all. That is not the case at all according to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Israel's plight is not to be traced to any change of attitude on the part of God toward her. Not at all. God is not through, and this is all review, with his chosen nation Israel. In fact, beloved, maybe you remember this, Paul says in verse 11, according to God's sovereign plan, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Sit on that for a while. Meditate on that thought. No room for pride for the Gentile in that. And as we begin to see last time, Paul used a metaphor, a metaphor of a cultivated olive tree to explain to his Gentile readers why they have absolutely no reason to harbor any sinful pride when it comes to having attained a place in the people of God. The reality is, according to the word of God, is the present situation of Jewish unbelief and Gentile belief is simply a temporary outworking of the grace of God, all according to his divine plan, and should not at all be a source of Gentile pride. Let me remind you now of a few of the details we covered last time before we we take a closer look at verses 19 through 24. As I previously explained, the root of the olive tree, these are things we're going to read in our text, so I want you to, if you weren't here, or even if you were, just to remind you, you need to know what these things are. The root of the olive tree, to which Paul will refer, symbolizes the forefathers or patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or, and I lean this way, maybe more specifically, the first patriarch of Israel, Abraham the man with whom God initially made the special covenant that was extended to Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson. 
And by that covenant, the patriarchs and the descendants of Israel have been set apart for God or consecrated to God. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If the patriarchs have been consecrated to God, so have the descendants of Israel, set apart for or to God. The branches that were broken off the cultivated olive tree represent the majority of Israel who had stumbled in unbelief who rejected Jesus Christ and continue to do so to this day. Beloved, there's a remnant still. Still throughout history, there are, there's a remnant of believing Jews that continue to embrace Jesus Christ as, as Messiah. But the nation as a whole still flat out rejects Jesus Christ. Certainly as the Lord in Christ. They reject him. These branches are the unbelieving Jews that have been hardened by God. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. The wild olive shoots, this is all review, or branches from a wild olive tree, who do they represent? See if you remember. Gentiles, good. They're wild. They're the un... (laughs) And by that, just not cultivated, okay? Not cultivated, not cared for like a cultivated olive tree. By the way, remember I mentioned this? This is probably another dig at the Gentiles' pride. The wild olive trees did not produce fruit or, or were very poor at producing fruit. It was the cultivated olive trees that actually produced. And so who are the Gentiles compared to? Wild olive trees, wild olive branches. These wild olive branches, listen, do not naturally belong to the cultivated olive tree but they have been grafted in. Remember we talked about that? That agricultural process. They've been grafted in among the remnant of believing Jews and now share in the nourishing root of the cultivated olive tree. So what that means, beloved, is as Gentiles, we have no natural relationship to Abraham or the patriarchs and the promises given to them. We are but wild olive shoots that have been grafted in. So Paul says in verse 18, as Gentiles, we do not support the root, but the root of the tree supports us. Or to say it another way, we owe our spiritual existence as Gentiles, our spiritual existence and blessings to the Jewish nation. It is not the other way around. Gentile Christians are indebted to Israel not Israel to them, for salvation is from the Jews. That was what Christ said, John chapter 4, verse 22. Or as one pastor paraphrased verse 18, he said it this way, and I like it, remember that the Abraham, sorry, Abrahamic covenant is theirs, the Jews, and you, us Gentiles, are only a secondary beneficiary. Therefore, We have no right to disdain them or their heritage. We would be fools to do that. We would be proud fools. And here is one more quote from last time we looked at this text. Here it is. Gentile Christians who boast over Jews are demonstrating an attitude of disdain for the Jewish heritage. (laughs) Yet it is that very heritage upon which the Gentile Christians themselves depend for their own spiritual standing. For the root that gives spiritual nourishment to Jewish and Gentile believers alike is the patriarchs of Israel. 
as recipients and transmitters of the promises of God. And those promises, beloved, those blessings are those found in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Want to read the text now? Okay, let's read it. And for the sake of context, we're going to do what we did last time. We're going to begin in verse 11, read all the way to verse 25. So uh, follow along with me in, in your copy of God's word. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus, save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We left off at verse 19 uh, a couple of weeks ago. So let's just pick up right there. Look back at your text. Look at verse 19. Then you, who's the you? Gentiles. The Gentile in the church, he's speaking to them. Paul is speaking directly to them. Then you, the Gentile, will say, branches were broken off. What were the branches? Unbelieving Jews. Branches were broken off from the cultivated olive tree so that I might be grafted in and share in that nourishing root, right? Among the other 
branches that are there, the believing remnant of Jews. All right, listen. In light of what Paul has already said, he anticipates now how the Gentile might respond. And while the statement is basically true, Paul wants them to understand that it would be wrong, it would be wrong for the Gentile to find in it any reason for pride or conceit or a feeling of superiority over the Jewish people. Look what he says in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through your superiority? Because how awesome you guys are, how worthy you are of, of God and His salvation. You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Another writer, another translation of the Bible puts it just a little bit differently. just wanted you to see it, so we're working through this. puts it this way. That's true. But they were broken off because they didn't believe. You stand only because you do believe. So don't be proud. Be afraid. The simple point I believe Paul is making is this breaking off of the Jews and grafting in of the Gentiles has absolutely nothing to do with the Gentiles somehow being more worthy or important than or superior to the Jews. And on the flip side, nor does it mean that somehow the Jews are inferior, and that's why this has happened to the Gentiles, inferior to the Gentiles. But rather, listen, it is faith. That's the point. It is faith that makes the difference and nothing else. Yes, the Jews were broken off, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. And it is only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that the Gentile has attained a standing within the people of God. Now listen, beloved, listen. Maybe we're confused about what faith is even. I don't know. But let me, I want to just quote you a couple of things concerning that issue. Because once one comes to realize the only reason I have a standing in the people of God is because of faith, there is no room for arrogance if one understands correctly what that means. Consider this. By its nature, faith excludes boasting. Excludes it. Saving faith means that I rely on Christ. To do for me what I never deserved and what I never could do for myself. Where's pride in that? Where's there any arrogance? Where's there a feeling of superiority? He took my penalty for sin on the cross. How can I boast in myself for that? If I were guilty of a serious crime and the judge imposed a penalty of $10 million that I could never repay... And some rich benefactor stepped in and paid it for me. Listen, would I go around boasting about how great I am to get such a gift? No. It was shameful that I was guilty of the crime and even needed such a gift. You hear me? Beloved, do you hear me? Or do you hear this guy that I'm quoting? Do you hear what I'm saying? If someone else paid my penalty... I can only boast in how kind and merciful he was. 
The reality that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should remind us of why we're needing to do that in the first place. Reception of that gift is because we were under guilt for our disgusting and vile sin. That's why we we humbly come to God. We recognize we can't do anything to fix our situation. Right? So pride has to stop right there. When you come to the cross, you don't come in pride. Otherwise, you're not coming. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not coming to the cross. You can't come in pride. You come low. Right? You come low. You're ruined before God. And you know it because God has revealed it to you. You see it. You know it now. And you humbly just receive. You don't earn. You don't work for it. You receive the gift of God. This rich benefactor steps in and pays the debt you could never pay. Where's their pride in that? And yet we're... We're fools. Somehow we still find a way. We still find a way to boast. Not in Christ. Not in his mercy. Not in God's grace. But somehow in ourselves as we start to think, yeah, man, I deserve this. Or at least I certainly deserve it than that person over there. Another writer says this, what Paul says here to the Gentile Christians echoes what he said earlier to the Jews, specifically in Romans. We looked at this some time back. In response to the Jews' tendency to boast. You know, pride is an, you know, it's an equal opportunity. It, takes, it, it, it affects all people, right? So Jew and Gentile. It's not like the Jews weren't proud either, right? They were boasting. So earlier in, the, in Romans, he responds to them, to their tendency to boast in their status and accomplishments. Hey, we're the people of God, you know? We got the law! We have the prophets, you worthless, terrible Gentiles, right? So Paul attacks that. Paul emphasizes that the gracious nature of God's dealings with human beings excluded all boasting. It is faith and faith alone characterized by humility and receptivity. Just holding out my hands and receiving That is the only way to establish or to maintain a relationship with God, beloved. It is the only way. And then he's referring to chapter 3, 27 through chapter 4, verse 5. Recognizing that every spiritual benefit comes as a sheer gift from our gracious God, the Gentile Christian must stop thinking so highly of his or her accomplishments and take up an attitude of fear. Beloved, because of sinful pride, and there isn't a one of us, there isn't a one of us that to one degree or another are not affected by it. If you, listen, if you're here and you think, that's not me, that's not me, I'm a humble person, then you're blinded by pride. I'm just telling you right now, you're blinded by pride. We need, because of that, we need to be reminded of this very thing again and again that our salvation, our place in the people of God is completely and totally dependent upon the grace and mercy of God and apprehended through my worthiness, 
No, beloved, through my works, through my good deeds, my righteous actions. How? How is it apprehended? How do I receive it? Through faith. Which leaves us no room, no room for spiritual religious pride. Rather, Paul says, instead of becoming proud, this is what he says, we should fear. Ooh, you don't hear that very often anymore. I mean, you do in Proverbs. As Thomas is taking us through Proverbs, it's all throughout there, this book of wisdom, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. One writer says this, this basic biblical concept, fear, combines reverential respect for the God of majesty and glory with a healthy, a healthy concern to continue to live out the grace of God in our lives. Godly fear. Now Paul goes on to explain, listen, some of this may shock you, some of you, Paul goes on to explain why the Gentile Christians should fear in verse 21. He's going to explain why. Look back at the text. For if God did not spare the natural branches, where are the natural branches? Jews. Neither will he spare you, Gentile. One writer, one writer comments this way, found this interesting. Just think about it, for if we're thinking about that metaphor, picture. It would be a less violent process to cut off branches not in any way belonging to the tree than it would be to cut off the original branches. What is Paul getting at? Simply this. If God's judgment fell upon Israel, this chosen nation, for failing to believe, or if God so judged the Jews, who had a natural connection to the tree and its sustaining root, then you, as a Gentile, as an alien branch that has been grafted in, as one who does not naturally belong to the tree, cannot possibly expect or think that God will look more favorably upon you if you also manifest unbelief or fail to continue in faith. So the Gentile must not become proud. Listen, the only reason he's in the place he is in, the only reason he remains there is a matter of faith. If he fails to believe, who does he think he is? Does he think he'll get some special treatment that God you know, cares more about him than anybody else? That he's the, the focus of all that God is doing? He'll be cut off too. He'll cut off the natural branches. Who do you think you are? He'll cut you off too. That's, this is what Paul's saying, guys. We have no special claim on God's mercy. We must humble our hearts and walk, listen, walk in reverence before God and keep renewing our faith in the gospel. In the gospel. What's the gospel, beloved? Huh? Good news of Jesus Christ, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. 
the undeserved favor and unearned kindness of God to sinners, that's what we have to continue to renew our faith in, continue to believe. And we must maintain a healthy concern to continue to live out the grace of God, the grace of God in our lives. We must humbly persist in faith. That's what we must do as Gentiles. Not pride, not arrogance, not some sense of superiority. One writer says this, Gentile believers were no longer to preoccupy themselves with lofty ideas of their favored position, but to be on guard. After all, if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, what possible chance was there that he would spare branches grafted in contrary to nature? Gentiles. Oh, this is where it really gets exciting now. Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. All right. Now that's the text, okay? Maybe you're thinking some things right now. Like you're thinking, well, Jeremy, are you saying something different than you've said before? I'm not. Listen. Let me ask a question. Maybe it's already in your mind. Is Paul suggesting here that it is possible for someone who is truly saved to lose their salvation? To be cut off? And let me just say before you answer that, on the surface, it does sound like that. It sounds like that. And the reason I'm asking that question is because Christians have come to this, this section of God's word and they have used it to defend their position that the believer is not eternally secure, which I absolutely reject. Not because, and based, I have no authority, beloved. I reject it. I have none. I reject it based on what the Word of God says concerning that matter. That's the authority. All right? So let's just ask some questions. If, if, if Paul, he's not, if Paul is saying that someone, a believer, a true, authentic, genuine Christian can lose their salvation, if he's saying that, then he's a madman. He's a madman. And I say that because then he'd be contradicting what he just wrote in Romans chapter 8. That, listen, we spent some time there, like this, that all those who have been predestined, called, and justified will, without a shadow of a doubt, ultimately be glorified. Remember that chain of redemption, that golden chain of redemption? There's no break in the chain. That's Romans chapter 8. He goes on to say there, nothing Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So he wouldn't get a few chapters later and go, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to mess with them. I'm going to write something entirely different. 
Beloved, when one examines all the Bible says about salvation, the message is more than clear. If people would uh, be willing to openly look at it, that the true, authentic, genuine believer is eternally secure. Okay? You with me? So don't think I'm flipping on you. I'm not. I'm just reading the text, okay? I'm, I'm facing the text just like you are. We're going through it. Which makes it so interesting when you go verse by verse because you can't skip any of the difficult things. Huh? Which makes it really hard for me. That <laughs> sometimes I want to skip them, I'm telling you. But I'm committed to verse by verse. So, let me say something. We need to understand, this is the part we need to understand. True, saving faith. It is eternal. It does secure you. All right? But don't ever forget, it's a persevering faith. It is a persevering faith. It is a faith that continues. It, it is a faith that is not simply an event that occurred in the past, but continues on till the very end. Did you hear me? Yeah. Saving faith. Saving faith. It's a faith that has a beginning, but has no end. It has no end. And beloved, you can, even, you know, we're studying Colossians together. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. Not now, not now. We're studying it in our growth groups. Read that. See what Paul says there. Read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 and 14. Read that. See what he says there concerning those who are saved. And as we learn in 1 Peter 1, 5, we learn this, that the genuine believer, by God's power, is being guarded. Guarded, how? Through faith. Through faith, a sustaining, persevering faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what 1 Peter 1.5 says. Let me kind of help you with this. Commenting on verse 22, one writer says this, Paul's main purpose in this verse appears at its end, at its end. He's repeating his warning to the Gentiles who may, like the Jew in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, presume... Presume on God's goodness or kindness. For the goodness of God is not simply a past act or automatic benefit on which one can rest secure. It is also a continuing relationship in which the believer must remain. There's confusion in the church today about this very issue. One cannot claim to be a born-again believer, and yet abandon the faith. They can't. If they are a born-again believer, they will continue in the faith. Because the only kind of faith that God grants is persevering, sustaining faith. And one writer goes on to say, if one does not continue in God's kindness, like the Jew, they will be cut off, severed from the people of God. In issuing this warning, Paul echoes a consistent New Testament theme. It shows up again and again. Ultimate salvation is dependent on continuing faith. Therefore, the person who ceases to believe forfeits any hope of salvation. One writer says this. Just think about it. There is... Otherwise, you can go the other direction and claim that people can lose their faith or that people can actually, true believers, can lose their salvation. Absolutely no way. So how do we understand this? And I'm trying to explain to you how we can understand it and still accept what Paul is saying. There is no such thing as continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy. 
You know what apostasy is? Uh, generally, to renounce or defect from one's faith would just be a general definition of apostasy. You, you understand? You cannot say you're continuing in the favor of God, you're, you're saved, you're a believer, and yet you're living in apostasy. It's impossible. God's saving embrace and endurance are correlative. They, they are connected. You get it? His saving embrace and his endurance for you to remain in his saving embrace go hand in hand. He holds on to you, beloved, but he commands you to hold on to him. Hello. I'm not holding on to him. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Oh, but I know I'm going to heaven. Um, why? Because, you know, I, uh, I prayed a prayer when I was six. My dear friend, you're not going to heaven. And I don't believe you are. At least you have no reason to think you're going to heaven. I'm not God. So I don't make the final judgment in any of these things, but I have the word of God, and the word of God is pretty clear about these matters. One who does not continue in faith certainly has no reason to think that they'll have a place in the kingdom of God. And some Bible scholars have explained one of the ways by which God promotes continuance of the faith is by warning us, listen, is by warning us of the consequences for those who do not continue. See if you can follow this. God ordains the ends, okay? So when he, when he calls, when he predestines and he calls and he justifies, he's, he's ordaining their end. They will be glorified. But he also ordains or brings about or decides or determines the means, how he's going to get that person to the end. And one of the ways he does that is by telling them, look, it, I got you, but you hold on. You hold on. If you don't hold on, you're gone. And you go, wait a minute, what if I don't... Is it possible I won't hold on? No. The true, authentic, believing Christian will hold on. They'll hold on. They'll find the power in themselves. No, no. But in the spirit that dwells inside them, God will sustain them through faith. He will guard them till the very end. And how does he do that? He warns them, in part. He warns them, hold on. Continue to believe. Don't apostatize. One writer says it this way. Grace, listen, grace imparts, it imparts perseverance, that continuing idea, by imparting, giving, granting, and maintaining faith. 1 Peter 1.5 And it freely uses all means by which such faith is properly animated, brought to life, and energized, given power. So what are those means? Amongst such means are these warnings of the results that must follow if faith loses hold of its object. One writer says it this way, same thing. Paul isn't contradicting himself. Rather, Paul consistently taught that by God's strength, genuine saving faith perseveres over the long haul. But one way that we persevere is through the many warnings in Scripture not to fall away. That's how you can understand the warnings, beloved. The other side goes the wrong direction. They contradict what is very clear in the Word of God. They say this is talking to the actual believer and could actually happen to them. They would fall away. No. 
God sustains us in part by giving us these warnings not to fall away, to continue in his kindness, to continue to the very end. And the true, authentic, genuine believer will. They will. So this is nonsense about someone saying they're a believer and then they don't continue on in the faith. They are not a believer. They are not. Beloved, they're not. And it would be terrible and tragic for us to suggest to them that they are. When the word of God is clear, they have no reason to believe they are. Our faith, get me now, I'm going to come back a little bit. I'm trying to finish here, I'm I'm over already, but listen. Our faith may be weak at times. Hello? Right? Challenged. Incredibly challenged at times. You could have a crisis of faith, huh? Certain things come into your life, man. But saving faith endures. It endures. Even through all that, it endures. If you don't endure, then you never had saving faith. That's that's what I'm saying. Because I believe that's what Paul is saying. Now let's look back at the next two verses. All right, Let's try to conclude here. Verse 23 and 24. Paul, after saying that... Look, again, all of this, remember the context. Gentile pride. Are you guys kidding me? Are you kidding me? The only reason you have a place in the people of God is because of faith. Seriously? You depend on this nation that you despise for the things that you're getting now. If you were to become unbelieving, who do you think you are? You'd be cut off as well. All right. 23, and even they, okay, the they is Israel, even they, he's referring back, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, Just, here we go, context, all right? We're going to bring all of it together. Remember verse 11? Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Fall. Irreparable ruin. By no means, Paul says, right? In verse 11. Is their situation irreversible? Have they fallen into permanent spiritual ruin? Not at all, Paul says, okay? Because this is the position... This is what some of the Gentiles were thinking in their, in their arrogance, in their feeling of superiority. Yeah, they're out. We're in. You guys got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. That's what Paul's saying. Is God through with them? Is he through with the nation of Israel? Absolutely not. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back into the olive tree. And beloved, guess what? Huh? They, they will not continue in their unbelief. They will not. Not forever. 
They have for 2,000 years, but they will not. According to God's divine plan, there is a day coming when God is going to work mightily to overcome Israel's stubbornness and unbelief. By the way, in the same way that he worked in you. Huh? And me. And me, I'm with you. I'm with you here. He will work mightily, he will overcome it, and he will bring his chosen and beloved nation to faith and repentance. Just as Paul refers to in the verses that follow this section 25 through 27, which we'll look at next time. And Paul points out, we're not done, Paul points out in verse 24 that if Gentiles or the branches from a wild olive tree can be grafted into a tree that they do not naturally belong to, that is, the cultivated olive tree, then just think how much easier it will be for God to restore the natural branches or the branches that actually belong to the tree. The bottom line is since they were originally part of the tree, their return to the tree is certainly easier to understand than the grafting in of alien wild olive branches. One writer says this, the logic is crystal clear. If God can take a wild olive shoot, that's us, Gentiles, and graft it into a cultivated olive tree as he did with the Gentiles, how much easier would it be to graft the natural branches, Israel, back into their parent tree? Or you could say that if, and I like this, someone said it this way, you could say that if God could save a Gentile, that's us, from their idolatrous unbelief and gross immorality and lead them to believe on a Messiah that was not their own, then how much more is he able to lead Israel to adopt their own Messiah at that time when he graciously removes the blindness of unbelief. Huh? Beloved, while Paul's warning here the Gentiles about spiritual pride had a different historical context from ours, right? We're not really wrestling with this specific, with this details, with this matter, because the church, we don't, we're, you get what I'm saying? This is a Gentile church, okay? So this is a different context, different historical context, so why, while it is, and it was, a, it was specifically an attitude of arrogance toward the Jewish people in the church and outside of the church, that's the context, we shouldn't think, oh, well, there's no application for us, okay? So it doesn't matter then. I don't have to worry about this, you know? No, beloved. Spiritual and religious pride can and does infect us as well and manifest itself in various ways. And I, I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to close with this today. So here's another, another comment from someone that I found helpful as we seek to examine our hearts. Listen, it, now it's us. It's us, all right? It's easy for us who believe to look down on unbelievers with disgust. Stop there. Okay, I'm going to do this again. Don't read it, please. Don't read it. Because then you don't let me build it. I want to build it with you. Thank you. Mm. I love you guys, man. You're awesome back there. Listen. Um, yeah, great audio video team. Yeah, okay, but we got to stick on, stick on, all right, look down, on, all right, so this is what I said, when, when unbelievers come to Christ, right, when they come to Christ, that, those early stages, 
uh, their friends were unbelievers, typically. And they're not looking down on them. They're like, you know what they want to do? They want to tell their uh, messed up friends, but they don't even see them that way. They're just their friends, okay? And they see their friends and they go, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus. And there's, there's none of that arrogance, pride, and they make a lot of inroads with their unbelieving friends. But over time, this is the tendency, believing Christians, uh, sadly, typically have less unbelieving friends, uh, less contacts, however you want to, they just, they don't socialize with so much. They, they move away from them. And because God's working in their life, they begin to see you know, all this stuff happening. And I've said this before. Instead of giving credit to God and thanking Him for what they're doing, they, they begin to see the difference. But they see in the difference a reason for pride. You know what I'm saying? So they go, oh, like that. You're nasty. You're nasty. Yeah, they're nasty. And you're nasty apart from the grace of God in your life. That's what you are. You're just as rotten apart from them. Apart from, not apart from them, but apart from God and his work in your life and his salvation. You see what I'm saying? And so you begin to build this arrogance, this haughtiness. Oh my goodness. It even happens among Christians in the church. Because, you know, you've been spiritually sanctified a little bit longer, so God's done a little more work in your life. And you look down to your brother, brother, or sister who's maybe struggling right now. And you're like, oh, ew, look at that, man. They should get over that. Like I did. Are you serious? Okay, back to it. It's easy for us who believe to look down on believers with, with disgust and to think, stupid people, stupid people, they deserve to be judged, as if we didn't. Have you noticed that when we compare ourselves with others, we always pick those who, in our minds, are worse sinners than we are? Huh? We rarely compare ourselves with the godly. And what if we... What if we compare ourselves with God? Huh? If he had not chosen to have mercy on us, we would be darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God, and hardened in our hearts. And that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Beloved, as Thomas is going to come up here, he's going to introduce communion. And I've left him no time, which is typical. <laughs> but there's a time that we, the elements are passed. During that time, I'm asking you, search your heart this morning. Search your heart this morning and, and ask the Lord to reveal to you any such evil as this. Huh? Let him search out your heart. We're blinded to our own pride. Ask the Lord to search out your heart and reveal this evil to you. And then, what do you do? Confess and repent. 